Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Okay, so the last time we were together, maybe last two times, remember, all of a sudden, because of uh, the craziness of Saul, David got to the point where he started losing everything. Do you remember that? All the comforts of this world seemed to be falling away because now he had been declared the enemy of the king and he had to run and he literally became a fugitive. And so if you watch that movie, The Fugitive, I mean, really, that was the life of David. Um, When it first got started, he lost his home because he had to flee. He lost his wife. She had to lie for him and help him escape out the window to run from her father, Saul. And so he runs. Who does he run to? He runs to his mentor, Samuel. And eventually he has to lose Samuel and all the prophets because Saul continues to come searching after him. So he loses his home, his wife, his mentor. He loses his best friend, Jonathan, whom they are soulmates in every sense of the word. And he actually loses the entire spiritual community. Because what happened? Do you remember? Saul sent a spy, Doag, right, um, to kill all the priests in Nob. And so he slanted the story to Saul and told Saul that when David went for help, that the priest helped him and gave him provisions, acting like it was going to be a big revolt and that the priests had taken David's side and were giving him provisions and had sought the Lord on his behalf. And above all, that they had armed him with the sword of who? Goliath. Okay, and so the priest had given him that sword. Listen, that is one big cookie in his cookie jar. Do you remember that? I mean, he can open that cookie jar and think, listen, when I'm up against an obstacle, when I'm facing a giant, God is faithful. And that sword represented that. And so when Saul heard all of that, he looks at everybody in his vicinity and says, what is wrong with you guys? How have you not told me what is happening with David? Have I not done enough for you that you've taken David's side? And he's ranting. And so this spy goes, I'll help you. He found the perfect opportunity to step in and become important. And Saul sends him to Nob. And that man, Doag, literally kills 85 priests and all of the families. Wipes out the entire priesthood. And so now David has lost his wife, his home, his mentor, his best friend, and his entire spiritual community. He is running for his life and he ends up in the cave of Adullam. In that cave, isn't that a picture? Because here he is in the cave feeling completely isolated. How do we know? Because in that cave, he wrote Psalms 142. And I'm telling you, one of the saddest lines ever is in Psalms 142. He literally says, when I look to the right, nobody is there. When I look to the left, nobody is there. There is not one person who cares for my soul. Have you ever gotten to that place? And you know good and well it's not true. You know good and well it's not. But at that moment, I mean, I have family who loves me. 
I have friends that would fight a junkyard dog to get to me. I know this. But it does not matter because sometimes in your situation, when you are so down and dark and depressed, you are convinced in that moment, or at least you are sitting in it, that you feel like there is not one darn person that cares for your soul. And that is where he was in that cave. And the amazing thing is that while he felt that, the scripture says that all these people, these men started coming to him, all the riffraff. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it amazing when we're broken and vulnerable, how many people are drawn to us? And so here you have this riffraff coming. It said all the debtors, all of the down and out, all of those who were in great distress came to David in the cave. It also says that his family came. I don't believe they came necessarily to encourage him. I think they came out of necessity because what happens in the life of a fugitive? If you're a fugitive and they're trying to get to you, don't y'all watch Blacklist or any of that stuff? (laughs) Who are they going to go harass until they find you? Your family. And so he then had his family and had to make sure that his family was taken care of. He finds out that the entire priesthood has been wiped out. And who does he feel? Whose fault does he think it is? His. So now he's like, listen, everything is going to crud. Anything I touch is a disaster. Anybody who is around me is in danger. And he is in a really, really dark place. He travels from the cave and it says that he ended up in the forest of Horah, which I find this so interesting because this section and these chapters, he's in the forest with a bunch of misfits. Now tell me what story this sounds like. Here he is hiding out in this great forest with his band of misfits. And he finds out that his own people are being attacked by the Philistines. They're under great oppression. And so even as a fugitive hiding in a forest with a bunch of misfits, he wants to go help. And instead of a king caring about his people, the king wants to find the fugitive. He doesn't care about his people. Who does that sound like? How about Robin Hood, right? And so it almost seems like here he is, this fugitive, and when he hears about the city of Cala and how it is being attacked by the Philistines, he wants to go help them. What he does is brilliant. He seeks God because David knows something really important. Every battle is not our battle. Can we put that down? Just because we see something that isn't right or that needs to be fixed or because some emotion creeps up in our gut, in our heart, doesn't mean that necessarily we're to go out and inject ourselves in that battle and fight the battle. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't either. But he was awesome because he doesn't think he's the answer to every problem. So he inquires of the Lord. Uh, which tells us in his gut, what did he really want to go do? He wanted to go. Why? David is a warrior. That's who he is. He He loves his people. He wants to fight those battles. He was made for that thing. And so he's seeking the Lord and the Lord tells him to go. He goes back to his mighty men, which by the way, they all came in as misfits. By the time David becomes king, they're going to be known as the mighty men of David. 
Let me tell you, you may come in as a misfit, but when you have a leader like David, who is a foreshadowing of the great leader to come, he takes all of us misfits and brings us together and he can do mighty things at the end of the day. It's a pretty awesome deal. And so he tells them, we're going to go free our people. You know what I think is interesting? At one, one section, he is absolutely brokenhearted, depressed in the cave. He cannot see beyond himself. That is natural when we are broken. Literally, all we can see is the darkness around us. Nobody cares for our soul. What is one thing that can get us out of that? Seeing the need in somebody else. And so when he leaves that cave and he ends up in the forest and he realizes that his people are in trouble, he has a different purpose and he comes alive. But he doesn't jump the gun. He inquires of God. He goes back to his men and he says, we're going to go free Kayla from the Philistines. They think he is outside of his ever-loving mind. And so would you. They're like, are you nuts? We are few. Okay, David, listen to me. I know you're passionate and I know you're a warrior. But we are fleeing. We're fugitives. We're hiding in the forest from crazy lunatic Saul, in case you have forgotten. And we cannot, we're not in a position. This is not a real good time for us right now. It's probably not good timing. Um, because if we go help Kayla, we're not only revealing ourselves, we're not only revealing ourselves to Saul, but we got to fight the Philistines at the same time. This is not good. So David says, all right, well, I'm going to go back and pray about that. You see, he wasn't swayed by their doubts either. But, hey, if on the surface it looks pretty ridiculous, praying twice isn't bad. What do you think? Ask Gideon, right? He's like, Lord, I'm going to put this out there one more time. I need a little assurance because all of these guys don't think it's too smart, but I'm the leader and I get to make the choice. So I need to know. Can you imagine the pressure of your leaders and your pastors when they make decisions and they're leading a whole church a direction? It's awesome when they go back and go, okay, Lord, I need confidence. I need peace. Is this the way we're going? And God says, you go because I want you to go and you will free. You will conquer the Philistines. And so he comes back. I love this. And he's like, mount up. And guess what? You do not hear another word from his men. You know what I think happened? They have been watching David in the cave. They have been watching him heal in the forest. And now all of a sudden, he hears what's happening to Kayla. He is back. The leader is back. And when he comes back and he says, mount up, they're like, there it is. There it is. There is that spark in David's eye that has been gone. We haven't seen it for quite some time. And I am telling you, I can understand that. Because there were so many days in my last two years that I thought, I'm done. I'm not teaching. I taught out of obligation, to be honest, and maybe out of just sheer obedience. But I felt like sometimes I was walking through the motions just to survive. And then there was a moment where I saw the wounded around me and I saw what my words and what my testimony and vulnerability could do for them. And all of a sudden, people around me went, aha, 
And it's not that I don't get waves. I've had another wave come through. But I'm telling you, it was like, there it is. I see the spark. She's back. She has the passion. And the funny part is, is now as the women, especially on Tuesday morning, I always tell what's been going on in my week when we get started. And they know the worse my week is, the better my teaching's going to be. <laughs> They'll look at each other and go, oh, man, this is going to be good today because she is a hot mess, right? And so, but honestly, I think they never said another word. They mounted up. And they went, and guess what they did? They kicked the Philistines' butt, and they freed Kayla. In the meantime, it's exactly how they thought it would happen. Saul finds out that David has gone to Kayla, and he thinks, I've got him. He's at the Red Sea, dude. He is in a walled city. He has nowhere to go. We're going to get him. Oh, really? Saul needs to figure out he's not in control, right? So David gets word. What does he do? He does what David does. He inquires of the Lord. And he says, God, will Saul come? And God says, yes. By the way, how is all this happening? The Urim and the Thummim. Do you remember that? The two, the dice. I told you. How does David have it? Who survived? One priest survived at Nob, Abiathar. And he, it specifically says in scripture that he, he fled with the epid. And in the pocket of the epid was the Urim and the Thummim. So when he's inquiring, he's literally asking yes or no questions, okay? That is awesome. And we all think, man, how cool would that be if we could ask yes or no questions, right? I mean, like, should I go, God, or should I stay? Go. Okay, awesome, right? Should I kill this person or not kill this person? Okay, gotcha. Should I date or should I break up? Oh, okay. I mean, how, that is so awesome, right? You think, and you think you would totally obey a direct command like that. Later on, I'm going to question you about that a little bit. But in the process, David goes, are they coming or not? Yes. Are the people of Kayla going to betray me? Yes. Oh, seriously? So Robin Hood comes out of the forest to save them. And at the end of the day, they're going to give him up. And before you get so mad at them, come a couple of thousand years forward. Did we not have a savior that came to save us? And what happened? We gave him up. We betrayed him. It says they're going to betray him. And so he then flees from Kayla. All right. So sad. Um, and he goes to the wilderness of Ziph where he is running. And to be honest, every time someone saw him, they turned him in. And so all through the wilderness of Ziph, uh, they would tell Saul where he was. And Saul would constantly come after him day in and day out. Every day he was looking over his shoulder. Every day he was hiding his tracks. And I cannot imagine how worn out he got. But then we have this beautiful group of scripture in the middle of that where it says, and Saul sought him day in and day out. All of a sudden, you have this visit from Jonathan. It's awesome. So Jonathan knows where he is. Jonathan has never betrayed him. And Jonathan shows up and the scripture says that Jonathan comes and encourages him in the Lord. Now think about the things Jonathan could not do. 
Could Jonathan save him? Nope, couldn't change his circumstances at all. He could not fix his problem. And to be honest, he couldn't even stay with him. He could only visit. So what did he do? He did what any good Christian soulmate should do. He encouraged him in the words of the Lord. That sometimes that's all you can do. Sometimes all you can do is sit and pray. And you know what? I don't know if any of you guys watch NCIS, but I am in love with Gibbs. Okay, I call him the silver fox. I love him. And one thing I love about him is anytime there is a tragedy, he is a man of few words. And all he does is he will come sit by McGee or Dinozo, and he'll just sit there and that's it. Just his presence. And I can imagine that just the presence of Jonathan alone gave David peace to know here he is with me. But here are the things he said to him. He says, my father will not find you. Do not be afraid. You know this. God is going to protect you. He won't find you. How important is that? He has been running every single day and night. Saul is on his trail. He's like, he's not going to find you. So take a breath. And number two, you will be king. Do not forget, you will be king. And when you are, buddy, I am right there by you. It was as simple as that. I, listen, it doesn't take much to hold on to when you're in a panic. I can remember, I didn't pin the Psalms, but I did a lot of screaming in the trails in Phoenix, and I can remember three things. God, you are in control. God, you are good, and you love me. Done. I didn't know anything else. I didn't know how anything else would work out. Couldn't possibly imagine it would. Everybody was a mess. And all I could say is, God, you're in control. None of this took you by surprise. You're absolutely sovereign. I believe it. Don't understand a bit of it. You are absolutely good and you love me. Done. That's it. And you just hold on to those things because really you don't know what else to do. You can't fix the problems. So you have this beautiful picture of Jonathan coming. Then you have this deal where David escapes from Saul by the skin of his teeth. They are in the area of the wilderness of Ziph. David is coming around this side of the mountain. And if we could watch the movie, we would be like, David, turn around. He's coming because Saul is coming around. They know and they are literally going to run into them. But just in time, a messenger comes and tells Saul, the Philistines are attacking your land. And they turn and go the other direction. We would be like, oh my gosh. Never so thankful for the Philistines, right? This is going to come back. Remember this instant. Because why do you think the Philistines attacked right now? What do they know? They know that Saul is a maniac trying to find David. That is his priority. He has literally taken all of his troops out of doing what they do to go find this perceived enemy. And so guess what? While he's out looking for David, they're coming in and they're taking sections of his land and oppressing the people. So just in time, they turn around and David makes it. He then escapes to the region of En Gedi. Oh, how I wish. Some of you have been to Israel with me. Some of you have been on your own. En Gedi is unbelievable. So I want you to picture the area of the Dead Sea, which is basically the wilderness, 
All right, unless they have had heavy rains, it is a dry, barren land filled with all kinds of mountains and crevasses, and it is barren. You'll be in a bus today going through all of this barren land, looking at the dry land, seeing that the Dead Sea is receding like crazy, and you'll end up coming up into like a crevasse back in there, and you end up at a nature preserve called En Gedi. It is one of two freshwater springs on the western shore of the Dead Sea. And it is so massive that it, even today it has a waterfall in that area. It is known for all of the diverse plant life, like various plant lives all live together in one place here where they would never in any other place. Uh, diverse um, animals. It was known for date palms, and it was also known for balsam. They would uh, harvest perfumes in this area. So I want you to imagine in the mil middle of this barren desert, you pull up to this, honestly, it is a, an oasis. While he is there, he is hiding in the caves on the cliffs. Um, literally, you can see him. If you stand at the waterfall, if you're there today, you can literally see all the caves inside the cliffs. And while he is there, he pens Psalm 63. Turn to Psalm 63. I want to have some fun with y'all tonight. Now, I grabbed my message, so I don't have ESV, but I have my message. And I'm going to read Psalm 63, and I want you, because he penned it in Engedi, I want you to imagine his surroundings, and I want you to remember what he's been through. And he ends up at this place. Psalm 63 says, God, you're my God. I can't get enough of you. Now, I'm reading the message, okay? I love it. I can't get enough of you. I've worked up such a hunger and thirst for God, traveling across dry and weary deserts. Think about it. He is expressing how he is feeling physically and spiritually in this place. He has literally traveled through the barren desert, and they finally get to Engedi. How do you think they drank that water? I mean, they are so glad to be there. I think they guzzled it. I think they jumped into it. They did it all. And he is equating this with his hunger and thirst for God. He's like, oh, this is marvelous. I want you just like this. And he goes on and says, so here I am in the place of worship, eyes open, drinking in your strength and glory. Why strength and glory? There is a massive waterfall. He is seeing the strength and the glory of this nature. And he is drinking it in and he is comparing it to God and he's calling it an absolute place of worship. Why? He hears the choir of the waterfall in the background. It says, in your generous love, I am really living at last. My lips brim praises like fountains. I bless you every time I take a breath. What is this saying? I am here in this beautiful place. It's like a worship place. It is a spring in the desert to where I can drink and I hear the powerful waterfall. And he's like, and honestly, I can finally take a breath. Can't you feel him? I don't know if you've ever been so tense or so stressed and you realize that you've gone quite a while without breathing. I mean, 
He has had Saul right there on his back all the time. It is go time every second of the day because you're in fight flight mode. And then all of a sudden you get to a place where you can relax. And have you ever found yourself go, (sighs) (sighs) this was his place. In Getty, my arms wave like banners of praise to you. What is he looking up seeing? Date palms. He's got the stars laid out over this beautiful oasis surrounded by date palms. And he's like, like those date palms, my arms are lifting up to you. I eat my fill of prime rib and gravy. I smack my lips. It's time to shout praises. Why? What else is around a watering hole? Animals. They get to eat, people. All right? He's like, this is prime rib and gravy. We have been on scraps. I am a fugitive, right? And so not only do they get their fill of drink, but they get this nourishment. They get to take a breath. They get to take a break. And I love when he says, he says, if I'm sleepless at midnight, I spend the hours in grateful reflection because you've always stood up for me. I'm free to run and play. I hold on to you for dear life and you hold me steady. Listen. Can you see him? In the moonlight, he's taking a break. He can't sleep, and he's looking out over the water hole. Not only will you see animals like the circle of life, right? You have them to eat. What are they doing around the water hole? Playing, jumping, running. They've been in the barren wilderness too. And he's like, oh, that my heart. And then those who, you are, who are out to get me are marked for doom, marked for death, bound for hell, they'll die violent deaths. Jackals will tear them limb for limb. Where is he seeing that? At the watering hole. Do you understand? It's the circle of life, right? I mean, and so the whole picture of Psalm 63 comes alive to you when you understand the background of what David is doing and the location that he's sitting in when he pins this. And we can put ourselves in that spot and go, oh my gosh, I so get it. When you finally can get out of the rat race and you can get to a place where you can be refreshed and you can just sit back and you can look at your surroundings and say, God, I thirst for you like that. I'm starving for you like that. I can lift my hands in this place of of worship. You make me, you've given me an opportunity just to run and play and have some fun because David needed it. He was refreshed. I lost my notes, so hold up. So he escapes to En Gedi. While he's in Gedi, he's in a cave in that area, okay? Guess who comes in? Stinking Saul. So he has conquered the Philistines, and now he is right back on the warpath to find David. And he happens to be in an area and he gets down off his stallion and he grabs the Israelite times to go in and do his business in a cave. Wrong cave. Talk about getting caught with your pants down. I mean, this is bad news, right? And so he goes in there to do his business because why do you think he's alone and not guarded? And so David's men are like, this is it. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. Get her done, right? This is the opportunity. 
And instead, David comes up like a cat, silent, and he could have killed him. He doesn't. What he does is he cuts the bottom hem of his robe. That's very important because all through scripture, we've talked about very often how outer garments betray. Do you remember me teaching you that? That even the word clothes in Hebrew, uh, the root word is beged, which literally means traitor. So clothes can betray. Outer appearance can be a traitor. It can betray. You don't even see clothing or coverings come until after sin, right? We saw the betrayal of clothing with Jacob and Esau, right? Pretending to be Esau. We have all of that. But let me tell you what else clothing does. It tells you the status of the individual. And so in this biblical day, the more ornate the hem of your robe, the greater your status. So you can imagine what the royal robe looked like and what it was is it represented him as a person and it represented his position as king. And so what David did, David did not kill him but he symbolically dethroned him. That's what he did. Now, at that moment, eventually, when that is shown to Saul, can I ask you what flashback should have come into his mind? Think about it. Where else do you see before this the hem of a garment ripped and the announcement that you will lose your kingdom? Just as you rip my garment, your kingdom will be ripped from you. Do you remember what he did? Come on, y'all know this. Do you remember when he did not kill the Amalekites? And do you remember Samuel shows up and says, buddy, you in big trouble. God has rejected you. And Saul says, okay, it's all good, but please come with me to the sacrifice. And Samuel said, no. And he went to leave and Saul reached over and grabbed the hem of his garment and it ripped. So what is that? That is a disrespect, a symbol of this prophet that is telling you your kingdom will be taken from you and given to your neighbor. And now you have David who could have killed you, reach up and show you the hem of your garment that what Samuel said was actually going to what? Come true. But in the process, David was remorseful for what he had done. That is amazing. Because what he has done is he has taken things into his own hands. He has stepped out of God's timing. Symbolically, what he did is he dethroned him. Okay? But that is a job for God. God anointed him. God put him in that position. And it is up to God to take that position away. It was not for David. But let me ask you something. Aren't we glad he did not listen to his friends? Because I want to ask you something. If he had done that, see, I love when people read it like it's a Sunday school story, like it's not history. And you don't think about what it would have actually done in that day. Do you honestly think that if David had killed Saul, he would have just become the next king? Are you kidding me? If the nation of Israel found out that David just killed their king, he would be a fugitive for the rest of his life. Not to mention the fact he would be setting a precedent that nobody on earth would ever want. 
right? Oh, if you don't like your king, just kill him and take his place. And not to mention, what would this have done to Jonathan? What position would this have put Jonathan in? Because the entire nation would be saying, oh, heck no, we're going after David. David would have been stepping right into everything Saul had said about him. Haven't you wanted to do that before? Haven't you wanted to? When people say things or they talk about it or they accuse you, the first thing we want to do is be defensive to defend ourselves, to step up in battle. But how often, if we do that, will we actually just be playing into everything they're saying about us? <laughs> it's so hard, right? And David said no. He showed great restraint. And even when he symbolically disrespected his king, he was remorseful. And that is why he is a man after God's own heart. And so he shows Saul that. Saul does all this, oh, David, my son, oh, I know you're not my enemy. Oh, my gosh, you will be king because he knows he will. At this moment, that flashback came in and he's like, yep, you will be king. But let me tell you, words are cheap because he gets back home. David finally flees and then Saul gets over it and he starts to chase him again. David flees to uh, another area. In the process, we have this verse that comes in that seems so random. In the middle of the narrative, we get one section that says, and Samuel died. Do you remember this? Like, really, that's it? One little flash, like you're reading the narrative all the way through. Okay, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Oh, and by the way, Samuel died. And all the nation went to have a memorial. Right after that, you have the most amazing story ever about a man by the name. Now, keep in mind, Samuel died because I'm coming back to it. You have a man by the name of Nabal, which his name literally means fool. And he was a fool. Okay. Why is he a fool? Why does he not have wisdom? Because where do you get wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, all right? So he's a fool. He has no discernment. He has no wisdom. He is absolutely arrogant. He is a total narcissist. That is what he is. He is rash, the Bible says. He is harsh, but he is married to a beautiful, discerning woman. Actually, it says that she was discerning than beautiful. I love that because beauty is fleeting. Don't we know? Don't even go into that, right? But a woman who fears the Lord she shall be praised. And so you have this contrast. So what is happening is this dude is loaded. He is so wealthy. Well, all of his herds have been out to pasture. And while they've been out there, David and his men have been watching over this entire land for him so that the raiders of all the ites aren't coming in and taking his sheep. And his shepherds, know it like they're friends with David and the men everything is wonderful and now it's come to where it's time to shear the sheep which is a massive celebration it is a time where you are reaping all of your harvest you're seeing all your blessing and how was their blessing huge because they've been protected and so when you are a blessing God desires for you to be a blessing that's the whole point right God never blesses 
for us to keep. He blesses so that we can bless. That's how he does it. And so it is this time, it, it was very much a tradition that when you had these festivals, when you received your harvest, that you were generous to everyone who helped you. It's kind of like the idea of what a tip actually should be. Today, we don't have that idea. A tip is just part of the fee. It doesn't matter if you're a good waitress or you're a bad waitress, you're going to get 20% because I'm worried what people think of me, right? I mean, let's just be real. My haircut is not $90, it's $115 by the end of the day, right? But back here, it was all the people that went above and beyond, you were to tip. So David sends his men and he literally tells them how to say it in the most humble, mannerly way to respect this man. Not entitled, not expecting, just asking. Here's our situation. Here's what we've done for you. Everybody knows it. Whatever you have left, would you give us some? And that dude insulted David like you have never seen. David, who the heck is that? David, who is the son of Jesse? Do you know how many servants are out there running away from their masters? And I am telling you what, when that got back to David, he lost his freaking mind. And here's what I believe happened. One minute, you have David showing incredible restraint when the man that has absolutely ruined his stinking life and has been chasing him every day, made him a fugitive, gave his stinking wife away, he shows restraint. And on the other side, you have this stupid fool that just cut him off in traffic, basically. And he is ready to annihilate the entire family. Why? I believe it has to do with the verse in the middle that says, and Samuel died. Here's why. This is just my idea. You can write it in pencil. This is just Shannon version. All right, this is how I read it. Can you imagine how he felt when he got the word? Remember all that he's been through. And he gets the word that Samuel has died. And the entire nation is there together showing their respect. And he is not. He loved Samuel. He, Samuel was a mentor to him. Samuel was the great prophet. He could not go and say bye. He could not go and give his respects. He could not go and be a part. I want you to think about it. When I think of funerals in my family, they're kind of bizarre, but we all get together and we may not act up at the ceremony because we have a little cooth, but when we all get together after, I don't know if y'all's families are like us, but we get together over food and we tell stories about the person that just died. Okay, I can remember growing up, like when my grandmas died, I learned so much about those women by listening to the stories. And there were times after the funeral that we would be belly laughing so hard, I thought I was gonna die. And I'm like, my grandmother just died. And I'm screaming laughing. But the thing is, she would have loved it. She would have been the one right in the middle of the whole thing. But at these kinds of times, you come together, you tell stories, you cry together. He knew exactly what was happening and he wasn't a part of it. He was left out. The world was going on without him. 
He probably thought of every single person in attendance, all that was there. He knew what it was like. He wondered, do y'all even remember me? Do you even miss me? Did you even care about me at all? Do you know how you feel when you're left out? When you're the one not invited to the party? When you're the one that knows what's happening and you're the rejected one, the outcast? I know what that's like. I have an experience with it. And when you look and you're like, you know what's happening. You know the event. You know the songs that they're playing. You know the stories that they're telling. You know every person that showed up to this family event. You know it all. You know the food they're cooking, all of it. And all of a sudden you realize you're just the odd man out. The world goes on and you're just replaced. That's it. That's all. Everything is still going, but you're not a part of it. And you sit back and you think, do they even care? Do they even miss me? Is it even a problem? Was the affection, was all of it a lie? It hurts. And I'm going to tell you what, and all of a sudden, you get so stinking mad, you cannot control it. Literally, you seethe and you go, you mean, stinking, so-called Christian people. I cannot stand you. Oh my gosh. And, and you feel it. And it's, am I the only one that ever does this? Because y'all look at me like I'm a freak. You know what I'm saying? And you're like, how dare you? Oh my gosh. And it's all in there, right? It's all stuffed. And you're not saying any of it. You can't do anything about it. But I tell you what, an event like that happens and it's so fresh, cut me off in traffic. Do you know what I'm saying? Like all of a sudden, stupid Nabal that didn't have anything to do with all of this rage that has been built up in David and it's about to blow because there was just a very sensitive event that reminded him of all he lost and the fact that nobody cares that he's a fugitive and this punk over here goes, son of Jesse, who is he? He loses his freaking mind and we can all do it. And praise God for Abigail, discerning and beautiful. The servants know exactly who to go to. Why? Because they've had to go to her all along. She's the one with stamps, okay? And some people, if, if, I guess if you go to a very misogynistic environment that wants to give you really strict religious roles in marriage, would say that possibly Abigail went outside of her role because she disobeyed her husband or didn't tell her. She saved that fool's neck is what she did. That is love. Sometimes a fool, you need to save their neck despite them, right? You know, she knows what she has. She's not going to act like he's something he's not. She knows he needs protection. She knows that. And so do the servants because they come to her. And let me tell you, she packs it up. She's ready to go. She knows exactly what to do. She mounts up and she goes to David. And I'm telling you what, she was one smart woman. She bowed down. She did what every good crisis person does when someone's about to jump off. Now look at me. Look at me. Come on now. Talk to me for a minute. Calm down. Calm down and talk to me. This is what she does to David. She calms him down. Why is she so good at that? She lives with a fool. That's why. It says that he's harsh. 
He is always raging. If there is a woman who knows how to calm down a lunatic, it's Abigail. So she goes to work. Now, David, calm down now. I want you to look at me. Look, and she bows down. She does everything to bring down the passion of what's going on. And once she brings him down off the edge, she gives him the gift. So now they're being satisfied. He's, he's got some food. He ain't, he's not hangry. And she says, please do not let, this is hot power version, do not let this fool spur you to do something that you will absolutely regret because David, you are not like him. You are going to be the next king of Israel. And the last thing you need on your record is this. Don't do it. And I'm going to tell you what, he doesn't do it. She talks him off the ledge. It's amazing. By the end of the time, she leaves and David's like, who was that woman? Seriously, who was she? And then she goes back. And don't you tell me for one minute she wasn't a little smitten by David. I mean, come on. He's a fugitive. He's rugged. He can kill Goliath. He can kill the bear and the lion with his bare hands. He writes poetry. He plays music. Mercy. I'm single. If I found David right now, I'd be like, David. Somebody has a cheating problem, so that wouldn't work for me. But anyway, she goes back, and this fool is having a party. He has no idea. He nearly got annihilated. He's just whooping it up and doing all this. And she's smart enough to know not to talk to a drunk. So she just lets the night go, just looking at him like, mm, party it on up. Okay, well, you nearly got killed, but whatever. Woo-hoo-hoo. Next morning, she goes in to tell him what she did. And when she does, the dude drops dead of a heart attack. Swear, I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible. Drop dead of a heart attack from shock. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine. I don't know if she sang. I don't know if she skipped. I don't know if she was shocked. But here's the thing. When David found out about it, he's like, oh yes, I know a good opportunity when I see it. So he sent a messenger and he's like, uh, can somebody go see if that woman wants to marry me? Because she is quite the woman. And I need her. I need her to be with me. And so they go, and y'all, she packed up and went. Now, do you remember me telling you that that man, Nabal, was loaded? Loaded. She can't own property, but her sons can. She gave it up. She gave up all of that, basically, to pack a bag to go be a fugitive with David and his band of men. There were a total of about a thousand of them by this time with their families. And literally, eventually, they lived in enemy territory. I'm going to tell you that story. What does that tell you? Money may make you comfortable, but it doesn't make you happy. You can have a lot of money and be married to a fool and be miserable. Right? And so she packs her bag, she goes and marries David, and they're off. Don't y'all love this? It is a Hallmark movie. And I'm going to tell you, how much time do I have? I'm out of time? Oh, I got eight minutes. Okay, so are y'all interested still? Okay, so now they're running, and they have another instance where David could have killed Saul. I'm not going to go into detail, but he's so awesome. He sneaks in in the middle of the night. And right in the middle of their, where they're camped. And he saw spears right there by him, of course, because he's always ready to kill somebody. And so David literally took things so that they could see that he was there. 
and he could have just really stabbed Saul and killed him, but instead he takes evidence, and then he goes to a mountain far away where he is safe, and he goes, hello, and he wakes him up, and he talks to basically the head commander and says, great job protecting your king. Way to go, because I just waltz right in. I could have just sent him through, but instead I didn't. Am I really an enemy? Same deal. Saul repents, says all this, doesn't mean it. And so at this point, David realizes, okay, I have a thousand people with me. Honestly, how long am I going to be able to run from Saul? I mean, let's just be honest. Eventually, probability says what? I'm going to get caught. I have to do something different. He literally decides to take the thousand people and go into the land of the Philistines, okay, to the city of Gath. Now, you should remember that city for a lot of reasons. Number one, Goliath was from there. And number two, David has been here before. Do you not remember? Because this was one other thing he lost. Do you remember that? His self-respect, his sanity. Do you remember that? When he first escaped, he went to Gath and he tried to disappear in the city of Gath. Remember, I picture him individually with a black hoodie walking in New York, you know, the sword of Goliath hidden down his, you know, his pants, sleeping in a ratty hotel, just trying to stay out of everybody's way. But he's a hero. Someone sees him and they're like, uh, this is not good because this was at the beginning. What the heck is David doing in our city alone, armed. What does he look like? A spy. So that's what they thought. So they took him to Achish, and what did David do to save himself? He acted like he was insane. He acted like a lunatic. He started hitting himself on the wall, scratching at the wall, drooling on his beard, and Achish looks at him and looks at his people and goes, am I running an asylum? Do I not have enough crazy people? And Gath, that you need to bring me one more? Get rid of him. Which, by the way, I think it might have meant get rid of him. But David escaped. Now he's back. What is the difference? Why does this time, why does Achish this time take David in when the last time he was going to basically kill him or get rid of him? Because now time has passed and Achish knows what? David is the enemy of Israel. David is the enemy of Saul. Saul would rather leave his land unprotected to go chase David. So now he knows, listen, David is not on the side of Saul. David is not for Israel. He can be for me. And so David comes in and he lives in enemy territory. Now, I'll teach you the rest next time because we're out of time. But listen. David is good at this. He is really good because while he is in enemy territory, by the way, he convinces him that it is not a good idea for them to live in Gath, which is the main city, which is so good because first off, I don't think the Philistine people would be very happy if a thousand Israelites showed up drinking their water and eating their food. Okay. Plus, David does not want to be under the watchful eye of Achish. He wants to be out in the rural areas. And so he says, can we have land outside of Gath? And Achish gives them 
the land of Ziklag, which by the way, was originally given to Simeon and Judah and they never conquered it. They never got it. And now it is flat out given to David. And by the way, it was never given back. And so that's how in, in the process, he is actually taking the land that God gave them. But instead of doing it through warfare, he does it through trickery. While he's there, he goes out on excursions all the time, killing the enemies of Israel, all the ites. And you know what he does? He wipes them out, leaves no survivor. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody to survive to tell Achish that he's really an Israelite through and through. So he wipes them out. He takes all of the loot and he goes and gives it to Achish and convinces him that he's been attacking Israel. And so Achish believes that David is the most loyal subject that he has, that he is out fighting against Israel for him. And he's like, this is fantastic. Do you know what I love? I love the fact that even when David is a fugitive, he is still doing what God called him to do. He didn't have to be king. I told you, there were so many times I thought in pain or going through stuff, I was done teaching. I'm done. I mean, I went through the, I don't have a right to, nobody will show up. I don't even know if I want to. What the heck do I know? I went through all of it. But in the process, I was going to quit. And then I realized that's so funny to me because I could have quit. But do you know what I still would have been doing, to be honest? Teaching. I might not be up in front of anybody. I might not be getting paid for any of it. I might have to be doing all kinds of other things to live. But I can tell you right now, if you ran into me at Starbucks, if someone sat down and brought up any one thing about the Bible, about God, about any of it, what on earth do you think I'm going to do? I've watched myself do it, an airplane, uh, whatever. And it is so weird to me how this knowledge or whatever, this calling, God sets up appointments everywhere, all over the place, where literally someone will say, you know, I was reading the Bible, that, not knowing me. I was reading the Bible the other day, and it was just, I just don't understand it. I'm like, really? Oh, what were you reading? Well, like especially the Old Testament. I don't get it. I was reading about da-da-da-da, and before you know it, what do you think's happening? Oh man, let me tell you about that because that is the best story on the planet and this is what God did and this is what he's like and this is what he can do in your life. And that's what David is. Why? He is a warrior. That's what he is. He was that in the shepherd's field. He was a man, had a heart for God. He had a love for his people like a shepherd and he was a warrior. And whether a fugitive, if his people were in trouble, he was going to go and he was going to free him. If he was a fugitive in a foreign, in, in the country of the enemy, he was going to find a way to serve God through his gift and his calling, period. Do you realize that you have a spiritual gift? Whether or not you're making a living at it or you're do, I bet you're doing it. What is it that you love? What is your passion? It's not typically something you have to search for. It's something that is in you, that you do. It's what you're good at, period, no matter what. And so is the Bible amazing? I'm not even to the part I need to type out to you. 
So what we're going to do is um, we're going to finish up and we're going to begin to see about the war. Because what is happening next is the Philistines are going to go to war against the Israelites. David is going to start out with the Philistines. Oh boy, this is going to be something. Okay. And then he's going to be sent back. He's going to end up fighting a very different war. In the process over here, when Saul gets a load of the Philistine army, he is going to absolutely freak out. Well, guess what? He has burned his bridges. He's going to ask God. God's going to be silent. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't have the Urim and the Thummim. Why? He killed all the stinking priests. That was smart, wasn't it? Real smart. And the only one that survived is with David. The only other way God spoke in those days other than dreams, which he wasn't speaking to Saul at all personally, he wasn't speaking through the priests to him. He spoke through prophets. Well, guess what? He doesn't have the prophets either. Why? Who taught the prophets? Samuel. Samuel's dead. But before he died, what did he make known? That Saul's kingdom was no longer legitimate. And so the prophets were no longer speaking to him. So guess where he goes? He goes to the witch of Endor. Read about that and come back next week because I'm going to talk to you about that. We're going to look at the war. We're going to see the death of Saul and his sons. We're going to see what happens with David and we're going to begin to see David start to take over the throne. Okay? So you're pretty much to 2 Samuel. Did any of that, did that make sense, that whole narrative? Good, I'm so glad. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the story that you preserved. Thank you for history because history is your story. And Lord, I thank you so much that as we really spend the time to investigate the stories and place ourselves within them, we really learn a lot about you. Lord, we see over here that Saul, he won't let go of control. He won't learn. He will not bow the knee no matter how many opportunities he gets. I mean, Samuel's going to come back from the dead and say the same thing. And he will not bow the knee. He wants control. And in his fight for control, he loses everything. But Lord, on the other hand, there's David who leaves his hands wide open. Always asking you, Lord, what do I do? You are in control. I am your servant. Tell me yes. Tell me no, Lord. I am here. I am underneath you. You are king. He had the correct posture. Lord, none of this took you by surprise. None of this was out of control. My life is not out of control. You can see every ounce of it. You are sovereign. You are in control. You are good and you love me. If we walk out with anything, let's walk out with that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.